0: The reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning at verse 37, which is on page 1080 in the Pew Bible. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness." As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you very much, Helen. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word leads to eternal life. So please speak to us and change us. Amen. During March, as some of you will have noticed, we've been looking at the events uh, in the last week of Jesus' life, as recorded in John's Gospel. And John focuses on two things. First of all, the teaching of Jesus, and secondly, the reaction of people to Jesus. Now unsurprisingly, Jesus' teaching in turn focuses on his coming death, and in particular its significance. And the reaction of the people? Well, it was mixed, wasn't it? On the positive side, the raising from the dead of Lazarus had clearly created something of a sensation and people were welcoming Jesus on account of that. We commemorate Palm Sunday today and then people lined the roads and cheered and shouted, Hosanna, save, as was pointed out earlier. They thought that things were just about to change dramatically, the Romans overthrown, whatever. Uh, Furthermore, as we learnt last week, uh, the uh, non-Jews were also showing an interest in Jesus. Some Greeks wanted to come and see him. That's the positive side. And it was so dramatic that the Pharisees were able to say, with pardonable exaggeration, that the whole world has gone after Jesus. But then there's the negative side. The negative side was that the uh, religious leaders had got even more hostile to him. They decided that what they'd regarded as a fairly passive approach wasn't yielding dividends, and they decided the time had come to kill him. Indeed, they suggested they should kill Lazarus as well. Perhaps even worse, the ordinary people had also been alienated by his talk of dying. What kind of messiah was this? That wasn't what they were expecting, and they indeed were rejecting his claims to be the Messiah. And it's that bifurcation of views about Jesus which is the subject of the passage we're looking at today. So. Can I suggest you have it in front of you? And I notice that some kind person has very carefully put the Bibles in prominent positions in the various benches. By the way, if you were that person, thank you. That's uh, very, very good. It's, it's on page 1080, John chapter 12, and we begin at verse 37. And while you're finding that, I'll point out the passage divides rather neatly into two sections. Verses 37 to 43 are talking about the reaction to Jesus. And verses 44 to 50 look at the teaching of Jesus. And we'll look at those in turn. So page 1080, beginning at verse 37. And we'll start by looking... At John's comments about the reaction to Jesus, and in particular to the unbelief of the Jewish people. Verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these things, all these miraculous signs in their presence, they would still not believe in him. That was the issue. And why is it an issue? Well, think about it for a moment. If Jesus was the Messiah, Wouldn't we have expected people to flock to him? In particular, wouldn't we have expected the Jewish nation to welcome him? Uh, They didn't. He was meant to be their Messiah. What was going on? Was he truly the Messiah? Or had God's purposes in some way failed? Uh, Paul, the apostle, grapples with that problem in Romans chapters 9 through 11. John's grappling with the same thing here and his answer of course is the same as Paul. So what is that answer? Well broadly it's this, scripture prophesies that the Messiah would be rejected. So nothing has gone wrong, God's plans are still being fulfilled Uh, We should have expected that had we known our Old Testaments properly. That's the gist of his answer. In detail, he starts by looking at Isaiah chapter 6, sorry, 53 actually, verse 38. This was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet Lord, who has believed our message and to, (coughs) to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, you may say, hang on, what's the point he's making? And to understand that, we need to go back to Isaiah 53. Incidentally, uh, in the margin, very often in the New Testament, the writers quote a single passage, a very short quote, one verse or so, And what they're doing is using it as a proxy for reminding people about the passage as a whole. And that's what's happening here. So it's always worth, when you see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, to go back to that quote and read the context. This is Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one whom men hide their faces he was not he was despised and we esteemed him not the new testament writers consistently apply that prophecy to Jesus. It's part of Isaiah's great suffering servant of God prophecy, and they point out that it was referring to Jesus. And what's it saying there? Well, it says, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's prophesying that Jesus would be rejected. And what John is saying here in chapter 12 is, yeah, that prophecy had to be fulfilled. So, for the scripture to be fulfilled, Jesus had to be rejected. Uh, If it hadn't been fulfilled, Isaiah would have been a false prophet, wouldn't he? Or worse still, God would have turned out to have misled us. Now, I have had occasion to preach on themes similar to this I think six times in the last 15 years because it comes up surprisingly frequently in the New Testament and I know from reaction to the previous five occasions that people worry about this is is this determinism do people have a free choice what's going on here Now, I don't have time to go into that in detail, obviously. But I will make three brief points about it. And yes, before someone tells me afterwards, I have made these points before. The the, the three points are these. First of all, if God is truthful and consistent, then biblical predictive prophecy must necessarily be fulfilled if something is prophesied, it must come to pass. Unless that is we believe that biblical prophecy merely represents God's best guess as to what's going to happen in the future. And I can assure you that's neither what the Bible says about prophecy nor what it says about God. So point one, we believe in predictive prophecy, it must be fulfilled. And if it prophesied that Jesus would be rejected, then he was going to be rejected. Point two, notwithstanding the views of a few modern uh, theologians, God is outside time. In other words, the past, the present, and the future are just In his eyes, simply all parts of his creation. It's no more difficult to talk about the future than it is to talk about the past or the present. However, point three the Bible never denies human responsibility or the reality of human decisions. Indeed, it presupposes it. We'll find that later on in this chapter. It presupposes that we have responsibility for our actions and indeed, in many places, asserts that expressly. When we or anyone else uh, does thing, do things that are wrong and in particular reject Jesus, we are responsible for that. So you see, the Bible sees God's sovereignty and human responsibility as being entirely compatible. If I could really get my mind round what it is like for God to be outside time, then I'd be able to explain the detail of all of that. The problem is, I can't get my mind round what it means for God to be outside of time. Well, I can get my mind round the concept, but quite the detail is a bit mind-blowing. And as a result, I can't explain the detail. But the Bible does give us in very clear terms the broad outline of it. And it is that God is sovereign, that we are responsible for what we are doing. However, John goes on to say something even more striking. Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. That comes from Isaiah chapter 6. And it is quoted no fewer than six times in the New Testament by five different authors. That may be why I find myself speaking on this subject so often over a a period. Isaiah 6 is the passage which contains Isaiah's great vision of God. I saw the Lord and he was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah is purified and then accepts the call of God. And God tells him what his message is going to be. And a mighty strange message it is. The Lord said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Wow. It's not exactly an encouraging message to give a prophet, is it? Right at the start of his ministry. To be clear, the Lord was not saying, go and make your message obscure so that no one would understand it. Go and take a look at Isaiah. It's some of the clearest prophecies of salvation in the whole of the Old Testament. Now, I wasn't saying that. But what the Lord was saying is, I'm giving you this message but because of sin actually the deaf will become deafer, the blind will become blinder and that is all in my plan and that is why John here in chapter 12 could talk about that on the basis that it's actually the action of God. Now again, I can imagine some of you saying, whoa, just a minute. Have you just attributed unbelief to God? No. You see, first of all, we need to stress again that the Bible asserts that we are responsible for our choice, if such it be, to reject Jesus. Nothing cuts back on that. There is something else which is pretty grim, but which the Bible clearly teaches and which we need to have regard to, and it's the subject of judicial hardening. The uh, judgment of God is a very solemn thing, frankly a terrifying thing. The, the more you think about it, the more terrifying it is, and the bit of it that I've always found most solemn, most thought-provoking is this issue of judicial hardening because it's probably the most immediate to our experience. You see, what the Bible says is this. In the case of some people, God says very well, you've chosen your own way. You've chosen to rebel against me. You've chosen to do what is wrong. I will allow you to carry on that course. I will give you over to the course that you yourself have chosen you can have what you want and all its implications, including being on that di- downward spiral of sin leading to sin and the hardening of your own heart. Now, that is pretty grim. It is pretty thought provoking. But the Bible talks about it on a number of occasions. And I do suggest that you take a look at the second half of romans chapter one sometime later today it's the clearest short example of it i could give you many other big examples but but it's clear short example and three times in that passage paul says people were rebelling against god and sinning so god gave them over to do more of it and that's what's being talked about here I do recommend you look at that later. However, for now, let's just go back to the big point that John is making. John is saying we shouldn't be surprised by the unbelief that was being encountered by Jesus because what was happening was exactly the same as was happening in Isaiah's day and just as it didn't defeat God's plans then, so it was all in accordance with the plan in Jesus's day. But, of course, there was another side to the story as well. John tells us that yet at the same time, uh, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Go back to Isaiah. Uh, Towards the end of the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 63 and 64, Isaiah prays an anguished prayer about all of this. He actually, again, talks about judicial hardening in that prayer. And he says, but Lord, will you please return? Will you please come down to earth in salvation? And there, in that part of Isaiah, and indeed in other parts of Isaiah, we receive the Lord's promise that he will do exactly that. And what John recognised is that in Jesus... God was fulfilling those promises. Now, the, the faith of some people was clearly pretty weak, and they hadn't quite got hold of what following Jesus meant. But those promises in Isaiah, they promise that a remnant will have faith in Jesus. And John was seeing the fulfillment of that uh, in, in what was happening. And that, of course, brings us on to the second bit of this passage, Jesus' teaching. Now, we're not sure whether what we're reading here in verses 44 to 50 uh, was simply uh, part of what he was uh, saying and doing uh, in the incident recorded earlier in John chapter 12. In other words, we don't know whether this is simply a continuation of his previous teaching. It may have been been subsequently. It doesn't really matter. What really matters is to get hold of the fact that this was Jesus' final public utterance. After this, he retired with his disciples, he went to the upper room, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was arrested, tried, and executed. These were his final words of public ministry. And perhaps not surprisingly, he doesn't say anything new in them. What we read here is in the rest of his ministry, he'd been saying similar things for several years But what he does is emphasise certain key points. We're told that he cried out. This was no private discourse. He was crying out. He was presenting a challenge to the people of Jerusalem. It was as if he'd been with them for some years and he said, right, here is my final challenge to you. And what was that? Verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, He does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. He who receives me, receives the one who sent me, he'd said on one occasion. He who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me, he'd said on another. He who who believes in me, believes in God, the Father who sent me. Now, if we uh, had only that, that expression, then we might think he was simply saying he was some kind of super ambassador of God. But of course, he says more, verse 45, when he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. When we look at Jesus, we see God the Father. Paul says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When we look at Jesus, we see God because Jesus is God. That's what he was saying. And if we believe in Jesus, if we accept him, trust in him, follow him as he had called on his people to do, what then? Well, verse 46 I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. That verse contains the center of Jesus' description of his mission on earth. It is the center of why he came to earth. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I'm the light of the world, said Jesus. And what's probably the best known verse in the New Testament? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Note that word, whoever. Whoever believes in him. No ifs, no buts. If we believe in Jesus, we shall have eternal life. Or as it's put here, no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If we believe in Jesus, we will be admitted to the kingdom of God. But what if we don't? Verse 47. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge uh, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. Jesus stressed on a number of occasions that his earthly mission was not one of judgment. He came to uh, bear the punishment for our sins and to open the possibility of forgiveness from God... You see, in Jesus, God was calling on us, opening up the possibility of us repenting and turning to him, reaching out to us in love and offering a relationship with him. That was Jesus' earthly mission. He did not come to, to earth to judge. But we can't stop there. Did you notice he refers to at the last day, that's almost a sort of technical expression in scripture. It's referred to throughout scripture, from the Old Testament through to Revelation, sometimes referred to as the day of the Lord, sometimes just that day, or the day, D day. The day of God's vindication, the day when God comes both in salvation and judgment. And what Jesus is saying is that when that happens, those that reject him will be judged by the very words he has spoken. Those words which were extending and offering salvation instead become words of condemnation because they've been rejected. The words that should have brought salvation when accepted have become Words that bring condemnation. Put it another way. If we accept Jesus, we receive salvation. We receive forgiveness. If we reject Jesus, then we're rejecting the offer of salvation. And we stay in condemnation. Here's the key. There's no middle course. Jesus himself ruled it out. We need to face the fact that there are only two categories of people when confronted with Jesus. There are those who accept him. And there are those who reject him. And the consequences are profound. We, we, we really can't soften that. This is Jesus himself. Uh, if we go back to John chapter 3, I, I, I don't, you can look it up afterwards. I've already quoted John 3.16, everyone knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We quote it all the time and sometimes we may even go on to the next verse which I've already implicitly quoted, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Who can tell me What verse 18 says? Thought not. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And it's presented even more starkly just a few verses later, this is John three thirty-six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It's pretty stark, isn't it? It's the challenge for us. It's the same challenge for members of our family, for our friends, for our acquaintances, for our colleagues at work. It's that challenge that calls Jesus right at the end of his earthly ministry, to cry out, to say to all who would listen, "Here's the choice that is in front of you." And that challenge is still in front of us and all those we know today. And just in case we're inclined in some way to dismiss Jesus' words, he closed. By reminding us of the authority by which he spoke. Verse 49. For I didn't speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever whatever I say is just what the Father has told me. Note ending on the positive note. Those words lead to eternal life. Uh, It's a solemn thing to reject them. We would do well to have regard to Jesus' words. Amen.